Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Stay at home doesn't necessarily mean stay indoors. In an attempt to create new routines during the Bay Area stay-at-home orders, many have taken up hiking, birding, and other outdoor pursuits. Tired of your regular trail and looking to branch out? Well, if you're looking for a path less traveled to keep a safe distance from fellow nature lovers, there are many options. We'll talk to a veteran naturalist who knows what's blooming, mating, or migrating at parks and natural areas across the Bay Area. From geese to birds to prey, river otters to migrating whales, we'll talk about what critters you're seeing in your neighborhood and on your socially distant adventures. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Many of us have literally taken to the hills this past year, hiking and walking to cope with the pandemic, and others have well, gone to the birds, observing birds and wildlife outside our windows for the first time. There's an abundance to see. Elephant seals courting, gray whales migrating, a rainbow of wild mushrooms, and flights of sandhill cranes. And I'm now joined by naturalist and tour guide Michael Ellis of Footloose Forays for advice on where to go and what to look for and ideas for day trips close to home. And welcome, Michael Ellis. Hi, Michael. How are you? I, I love the fact that you said rainbows of mushrooms. Now, I don't think we're talking about that variety that might institute a rainbow in your mind. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll straighten out uh, fungi and lichens uh, throughout perhaps the course of this hour. I just want to acknowledge, though, the fact that uh, your usual ebullience is still coming through here, your high spiritedness. <laughs> I know you've been through kind of the travails of Job, and uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that because you have so many fans out there. Uh, Michael's uh, son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter all got COVID, and two-year-old granddaughter was extremely ill. This is the granddaughter that calls you Babu, right? Swahili yeah. for grandfather. Yeah. Plus, you've had a couple of uh, parts of your anatomy replaced. I mean, this has been a tough uh, period. <laughs> well, the toughest was um, the little uh, Alma who had something called uh, MIS-C, which is uh, related to Car um, Kawasaki, no, Kawasaki syndrome, which is, uh, uh, and she was only one of 1,200 people in the entire world that's had it, only one of 500 people in the United States, and only uh, probably the best, uh, the only one in the Bay Area that had it. So we wanted to get the information out that little kids can suffer from this. She was asymptomatic, uh, but uh, uh, kudos to Kaiser, Oakland, ICU pediatric who 
basically, you know, saved her life. So she seems to be okay now, but there's long haul COVID people, I think they're referenced now. We don't know what the uh, long-term effects are going to be. Yeah, we've done a whole them. show on that and we've talked a good deal about that syndrome as well. I just hope you're out of the woods with your granddaughter and uh, have turned a corner here. Uh, we're going to um, talk with you though about some exciting things that I know you're very enthusiastic about with people seeing been a, lot, a lot of enthusiasm where you're concerned these days about birds and birding and uh, all the Audubon lovers are out there. Um, in fact, uh, didn't you compare yourself to Mr. Wilson and Dennis the Menace? Uh, <laughs> yes. Kind of the, the yeah. nerdiness of bird watching. <laughs> yeah, I, I def definitely dated myself when I referenced Mr. Wilson and Dennis the Menace, who was the nerdy bird watcher. But, um, you know, out here in California, well, many parts of the world now, bird watching is cool. And, and people have discovered that the joys of, of their home life, whatever it happens to be. And we live in a, a, a biologically very rich place. So no matter where you live in the Bay Area, there are opportunities to witness birds all around, which is- Well, some great birding spots right in San Francisco. I think Lake Merritt and Golden Gate Park. Yeah, yeah. And the nice thing about uh, those parks is they're um, heavily visited. So the birds are not nearly as shy um, as they are in uh, the wilder parts of the state. So you have an opportunity to see birds really close that are habituated to people, especially this time of year, especially some beautiful uh, ducks, geese and swans. The waterfowl are uh, in vibrant colors right now because basically uh, what's happening now in the throughout the uh, northern Sacramento Valley, the Central Valley and California is a huge ducks single scene. So all the ducks are in vibrant. The males are in vibrant plumage. Uh, they're looking for females and everybody's uh, happy to be uh, uh, in the in the wetlands that still remain in our our beautiful state. They don't even have to go through any of these dating sites. In fact, uh, <laughs> fortunately for them, uh, we're talking to Footloose Forays, Michael Ellis. Uh, you this year, I guess, have had to obviously cut down on international trips. Uh, Footloose Forays is famous for canceled a couple of them to Brazil and three to Tanzania. But uh, there's a lot to see in the way of birds, even close to home, including your backyard. And I know. Uh, uh, up in North Sacramento recently, just last week, you were bird watching. What's there? Yeah, that's the most one of the most exciting things in the Bay Area throughout the entire year. Actually, is is the overwintering um, presence of waterfowl, which have uh, uh, flown in from the middle part of North America or Alaska or Northern Canada, and are gathering in literally uh, uncountable numbers. Snow geese, you know, there's probably somewhere between four and five million snow geese and Ross's geese and Canada geese, uh, and not to mention northern pintails, uh, the mallards, the widgeons, uh, an abundance of birds. And they're really easy to see and convenient. You can do it from your car, which, of course, is very important right now to minimize um, exposure um, and do it in a safe way. Uh, so uh, the places that I really enjoy and I was there last week was uh, uh, Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge, which is just uh, 17 miles or so north of Williams, the uh, Calusa National Wildlife Refuge, which is a little bit south of Williams, and Gray Lodge State Wildlife Refuge, which is near um, Yuba City, a live oak, and Yano Seco, which is a little bit north. It's just, it's, a, it's just unbelievable. So even if you're not like a hardcore bird watcher, just the aesthetic beauty of geese or rising out of a field and, and the cacophony of sounds is evocative of how California used to be uh, many years ago. 
And there are still those great places and an embarrassment of riches when you think about it. Uh, talk about uh, Sand Hill Cranes. Uh, Think about that river. Think about that river preserve uh, around Lodi, about nine thousand acres of Nature Conservancy. Yeah, that's uh, Kasumnis, um That's owned by uh, the Nature Conservancy, and it's the best place, or certainly the easiest place, I should say, to see uh, sandhill cranes, which are you know kind of a, a really really iconic bird. And uh, they have a sandhill crane festival. I believe it's in November, but uh, it this. Uh, beautiful amount of biological or avian richness will go on until mid-February or the end of March. So it's not like you've missed anything. Uh, and it's very, uh, yeah, you can just Google it. It's very convenient. They have nice obs observation sites and uh, yeah, was, uh, is, is a wonderful place. And it just, it kind of reminds you, which I think is one of the um, few silver linings of the COVID experience that we've had is to appreciate all the beauty that's close by um, and all the riches that you already have and not think about what's not good, but what, to think about what is good right now. And bird watching puts you in that moment. Well, there's certainly a lot to see, uh, depending on where you live, even in your own backyard. A friend of mine, Bruno Cohen, uh, lives in San Francisco, uh, posted on Facebook pictures of parrots that had landed <laughs> on uh on his deck and i know you've been uh doing a little hitchcock investigations uh in your own backyard uh i mean because a lot of birds uh because of the fires up there where you are in sonoma around sonoma county and napa uh loss of habitat are appearing in people's backyards more yeah oh yeah i mean especially uh the the small little uh seed eating bird called a pine siskin i've seen birds in my backyard this year that i've haven't seen before which is Sort of good news, but also bad news, because I think, as you mentioned, the reason is, is because of all the horrendous uh, fires and the loss of habitat. So they're driven into, you know, more urban or suburban areas because the uh, places where they would probably have wintered last year um, are recovering. Let's just say recovering because the, 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 the vegetation in California's, uh, in California's Mediterranean climate and uh, the ecological adaptations of periodic fires uh, will recover. Um, it just is a matter of uh, time. And it'll, like, like in Point Reyes, for example, the 1995 uh, Vision Fire, if you go back there now where uh, about four or 5,000 acres was burned, you can barely see that there was even uh, a fire there. So the, the uh, vegetation is fire adapted and will return. Might not return in our lifetime, but it will, will get back. But right now I have like a couple of redwood trees, a, a, a live oak and a valley oak in my backyard. And there's bay trees in the area. So these are all the native vegetation. So the birds are going, okay, this will do until um, next year or the year after. Yeah, I want to talk about um, some of the other wildlife that's around and the other critters that people can see and places to go and uh, lots to cover with you. And of course, we'll get hints and we'll get suggestions and we'll get recommendations from our listeners. Uh, but I wanted to touch on something that uh, I think was in one of your perspectives. You were talking about starlings in Central Park. Uh, I think we did a program on that a number of years ago. Uh, 60 of those non-native starlings back in 1890 were put into Central Park and now we got about 200 million. And what, what's, <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what continues to uh, amaze me in this, I want to get into non-native species and that whole uh, issue, which is still a big issue, but the incredibly enigmatic nature phenomenon of migratory birds and the habits of them. I mean, talking about your backyard, I know you've got a feeder in your backyard and some of those birds of well, those hummingbirds that go back there have traveled about 4,000 miles. 
uh, it's just unbelievable to me and always has been the migratory patterns of birds and how they manage uh, within their DNA or their molecular structure to go over these, I mean, 4,000 miles. You know, it's, uh, it, it remains um, something that's very mysterious and, and uh, a phenomenon that's fascinating. It is, and they've been uh, people have been researching this uh, ability that birds have to to find their way, even though a, a you know a novice bird, a, a first year bird, still traveling that way. We've got three species of hummingbirds in the Bay Area: um, Allen's hummingbirds, Anna's, and Rufus. And Rufus is is the one that you're referencing, which is the one that goes. That's all the, the one way in your the... bird feeder, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, right now the only uh, the only bird that's uh, that's present now. So it's a good time to go uh, understand your hummingbird species because right now only Anna's hummingbirds are in the Bay Area. The other two uh, are gone. So if you do see a hummingbird, most likely 99% of the time it's going to be an Anna's hummingbird. Um, and they're very feisty, like Rick, uh, Rick Quell, your um, producer, was asking about the competition that her she was witnessing between all of the hummingbirds and her hummingbird feeder and they're that right now they're fighting over access to food later in the year. It'll be access to females. Uh, and actually back to the starlings, it's funny because Eugene Shefflin uh, wanted to introduce to uh, North America, every bird Shakespeare mentioned in his plays. And so yeah. this is, this is the one from King Henry the fourth. Okay. <laughs> by Shakespeare. He said he would not ransom Mortimer forbade my tongue to speak of Mortimer in his ear. I'll holler. Mortimer, Mortimer, nay, nay, I'll have a starling shall be taught to speak, nothing but Mortimer, Mortimer, and give it to him to keep his anger still in motion. Well, you did a good job with the bard quoting there. Uh, kudos <laughs> on that. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about birds. I want to find out from what your thoughts are about, we were talking about migration, about migratory waterfowl and where good places to see them are. But we're also going to talk about whales and elephant seals and more. And we do want to hear from you. Uh, what have you been your favorite nature spots during the pandemic? And what questions do you have that you might want to tender toward Michael Ellis about what's good to see or what you'd like to see? You can give us a call right now. I invite you to do that. The number to call 866-733-6786. Join us toll free at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Michael Ellis, naturalist and wilderness guide for footloose, footloose forays and also someone whom you hear on KQED's Perspectives uh, and have heard through the years. And what bird or animal questions do you have? And what have been your favorite nature spots or sightings during the pandemic? A lot of people have moved from getting in congregant uh, groups to outside and outside is a good place to be, especially if you keep some physical distance. There are some wonderful things to see and experience and Certainly, many of you have suggestions and recommendations and uh, questions, so if you'd like to join us, you can do that now toll-free at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, 
or email questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I was just going to ask you before we went to the break, Michael, about these uh, uh, migrating waterfowl and great places to see them. Yeah, um, the as I said, the northern Sacramento Valley is a wonderful place, Yan, a place called Llano Seco, nice white-faced ibis, uh, Z-road for um, tundra swans that are feeding in the flooded rice fields, uh, a little bit south of that, uh, the Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge, Calusa National Wildlife Refuge, um, Gray Lodge State Wildlife Refuge further south, um, Los Banos, uh, is another great place to see. I, I've obviously got a bias toward Northern California. That's <laughs> oh, okay. All, all uh, the listeners do too. <laughs> well, yeah, they do. Though we're on Sirius and we have, you know, listenership well beyond uh, Northern California. But uh, I wanted to uh, get, get to our callers here and uh, those who are emailing us uh, forthwith. But also it said, I wanted to ask you about, uh, talking about migration and gray whales are migrating south. And there's some pretty good viewing places like out at the lighthouse, I know at Point Reyes. Davenport along the San Mateo coast? Yes, exactly. So they're southbound heading to Baja, California, and they're kind of the poster child for the Endangered Species Act where protected, uh, they've rebounded in, in really good numbers, probably uh, reaching their uh, maximum natural population because we've had some die-offs in the past. Now, obviously, climate change is affecting things in, in ways that um, are unknown to us at this point. But uh, but the, the, but the Point Race Lighthouse, obviously, which juts way out into the ocean, is a great place to witness the, the mi southward migration. Further south, Davenport, which juts out a little bit as well. Uh, Monterey Bay, uh, Monterey in particular, the peninsula out there. Any place, because they, they tend to be a little bit further offshore on the southward migration, whereas on the northward migration, they tend to uh, hug the coast a little bit, especially uh, the cow-calf pairs. And the advantage right now is uh, going to the coast, uh, besides just the beautiful um, Pacific Ocean, is there are also northern elephant seals, which are hauling out, which is another animal that has rebounded from the brink of extinction and uh, has... Yeah, you mentioned Año Nuevo. That's a good place to see elephant seals, yeah. Yes, and also Point Reyes. And uh, Point Reyes, yeah. At Chimney Rock, but uh, I want to emphasize uh, that these animals are indeed wild and people tend to get a little too close to them. So at least at Point Reyes, the mandatory distance to stay away from them is 25 feet. Uh, my, uh, my first ex-wife was volunteering on the Farallon Islands, uh, tagging uh, female elephant seals, and she was actually, uh, what you did, Lady Clarol used to donate, I don't know, maybe they still do, dye, and used to write the names in dye on the sides of the animals so that you could, you could uh, identify them easily without looking at the tag uh, number. And, and while she was uh, squirting the, the, the uh, dye on one of these animals, she got bit in the, in the thigh uh, by, by a, a female elephant seal. And she had that bruise for like two months, four big bruises from the teeth. So be careful out there, folks. Yeah. And no pregnant females yet to see? Uh, no, usually, uh, it's funny, uh, usually the first baby that's born uh, in any of the breeding sites, which of course would be the Farallons, uh, Anu Nuevo, Point Reyes, and further south a lot more, um, is usually born around Christmas Day. So I know on the Farallons in years past, I also volunteered out there, um, they would usually name that one Jesus. <laughs> Let me read a few comments that are coming in, then we'll go to calls. Uh, this is Noel who tweets us uh, that at the end of November, she writes, we camped at Pinnacles Campground uh, and enjoyed watching the birds at our campsite. If you want to see quails, this is the place to go. Did not get to see the condors, though. 
And Katie writes, uh, yesterday my five-year-old son and I went on a hike at Huckleberry Preserve in the Oakland Hills. On the path, we first saw a dead raccoon, body ripped open but not much eaten, and then, not too far up the path, we saw a deer leg pulled from a whole carcass. Any idea who could have been out hunting? Mountain lion? Coyote? Well, yeah, well, those are the two guesses that come to mind right away. Um, Yeah, Um, you know, it's nice to have habitat preservation animals that are uh, opportunities for predators. So whenever you see top uh, level carnivores or predators, you know that the ecosystem is functioning fairly well. So those are those two guesses that she have were are excellent guesses, probably, uh, yeah, bobcat um, as well, um, depending on the size of the animal, but lucky. Lucky for her and great to go out walking with her child. That's the, so important these days. And here's Dave from Castro Valley joining us. Dave, good morning. Welcome. Uh, I just, before I forget to say this, I just want to thank you, Michael, for all the years you've been on the air. And just a quick question, when are you going to be retiring? And uh, maybe you could answer that at the end of this. I would just like to offer, I am in Castro Valley, and there are some excellent hiking trails well, you can go around Lake Chabot, but you can also hike in the hills on both sides of the lake as well as both sides of Lake Chabot Road. And if you're looking for a little bit of a higher elevation, uh, I've done this one many times. It's Mount Diablo State Park. Uh, you can uh, go in through Danville or through Clayton. And if you go through Clayton, you can go through the Mitchell Creek Visitor uh, center it costs about five or six dollars to go into the parking area but they have some excellent peaks there i've done four peaks in one day there's mount olympus and north peak eagle peak and then the diablo summit which itself is about 3800 feet above sea level so those are some excellent hikes and i'd like to ask uh, your guest if uh, he knows i haven't seen too many birds i was i just did eagle peak about two weeks ago and I didn't see any birds. Is that just because of the weather and it's colder right now? Or is there anything else for that? And thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. And just to respond to your question, uh, my last day was going to be December, uh, February 15th, which was for symmetry purposes, because I started 28 years to the day on February 15th. But that's a national holiday. So we've shifted that uh, final program to February 12th, which is a Friday. Michael? Is it a natural holiday because you're retiring, Michael? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've known you since you were on KGO. I think we met in 1988. Uh, so uh, no, we go way a, back. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Mount Diablo is a wonderful place. And what they say is that more land can be seen from Mount Kilimanjaro than any other place on the planet Earth, except for Mount Kilimanjaro. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But on one of these beautiful crystal clear, like today, for example, crystal clear days. Oh, if you can get up to Diablo, you can see the entire western face of the Sierra Nevada. You can look toward the north. You can see Lassen. You can't see Shasta, but you can see Lassen. You can see the Sutter Buttes. You can see the inner coast range. You can see the outer coast range. It's just absolutely spectacular place. place By the go. way, may, Bay Curious did an episode on that. I, I don't think it's true that you can actually see further from Mont Diablo than anywhere but Kilimanjaro. Well, not further, but they say more land. I don't know if that's true because a lot of mountains in the, you know, in the world have another mountain right beside them. So I'm sure the people at uh, the state at Mount Diablo want to uh, keep that uh, illusion anyway. But it is, it doesn't matter. It's really a fantastic place. And as far as the question about the birds, you know, part of it is just observer bias. Um, you know, like you just happen to hit a bad day or, uh, or, 
I mean, the facts are if the Audubon Society just uh, issued a report last year or about six months ago, which said uh, compared to 1970, we have one half the number of birds in the United States that we had in 1970. So it's not just your imagination that there's less um less birds on our planet. It's, it's actually uh, sadly the truth. Yeah, we did a program on that and uh, it, it weighs on those bird lovers uh, uh, and weighs heavily. Let me bring some more callers on though. In the meantime, let me go to Patty. Patty, join us, please. Yes, hi, thank you hi. for taking my call. Sure. This is, um, I'm gathering all the information everyone has, but I have a very simple, prosaic, uh, urgent question uh, for Michael, for your guest. And that is that um, bird feeders. I've started, I'm an El Cerrito, we have tons of birds. I've started putting out bird feeders so I can enjoy them and draw them. And the squirrels are adorable, but the little monkeys are making it hard to keep food out. What is the cure? <laughs> well, okay, you all should, all of you should go to YouTube and, uh, and look at some of the creative ways that humans have devised bird feeders to keep the squirrels out. Um, I, it's actually, uh, you could get lost in that for a half an hour, an hour uh, with all the, and I don't actually know what the answer is. Um, there are some bird feeders that you can, you know, put on poles and have little guards that they can't, you know, go around. So you actually have to, um, you have to work um, in some way to put a barrier up for the, to prevent the squirrels from getting, and, and there are very, I mean, they're just like, you know, kind of cute, furry, bushy-tailed rats, uh, but they are really smart and they can figure out how to circumvent whatever thing you start to do. Um, so good luck. And if actually, if you go to one of your local, um, you know, like bird, bird stores, I can't think of a, a, a name of one, but um, they often have some suggestions uh, of, of, to help solve the problem that, that you are not alone in. Yeah, and in fact, uh, thank you for the call. Uh, I, I suspect that we may have some listeners there that want to send an email about something that's been successful with keeping the squirrels away from the bird feeders. And if you do have a suggestion, I'll certainly read it. Uh, I'm going to read some more emails that are coming in. This is Tim, who says, before COVID, I hiked on Maury Point and Pacifica every day for decades. I used to just see dozens of people hiking, but since COVID started, there are hundreds of people every day. I love that people are enjoying the outdoors, but only about half wear a mask. The litter, dog waste, vandalism, and dogs off leash has increased by a lot. What can we do to get people to respect our wild spaces? And there's a question that you have grappled with for many years now. Some thoughts? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, well, you, you know, we want advocates um, uh, for wild spaces, uh, you know, so when uh, tax issues come up about voting and protection of things. We want the constituents to be on our side, quote unquote, uh, to protect things. On the other hand, I mean, it's just basically education and people are coming out just because they haven't come out and they have the opportunity and this is the way. And I don't really have an answer for that question um, except to, you know, uh, in a gentle way, ask people, you know, to, you know, like I have a, I don't know, a little thing about the mask. When you're outdoors and there's nobody around, you know, you don't need to wear a mask. What I do out of courtesy to other people is when I approach them on the trail or they approach me, we just put the, the mask on. And then, 
um, and, and do it as a gift to other people because we all live in community. Uh, fortunately, in the Bay Area, it hasn't become a politicized issue like it has in other parts of the country. And, you know, and I also have had a problem uh, forever with dog, uh, dog owners who are not considerate about their um, ecological effect on the landscape. And they have the little bag with them, but then they leave the poop all over the place. And I, I have no answer for that question. I wish I did. And I not very useful. Well, one of the things I think I always appreciate about you is my dad used to say, when you don't have an answer, you can actually say, I don't have an answer. And you're <laughs> capable of doing that. Uh, kudos to you on that score. Here's oh, Allison who says, I love Michael Ellis's frequent contributions to KQED. Could he please comment on the monarch butterfly being added to the endangered species list? And what can we do to help? Can we plant milkweed in our backyards? Well, I haven't looked. Thank you for that question, Allison. Uh, I haven't looked at all of the details, uh, but I understand that um, I know some uh, monarch uh, butterfly and other advocates are talking about the effect that uh, Monsanto products have had uh, on uh, other, a lot of insects and the, the level in which we're using uh, pesticides is unprecedented. And so we're seeing, uh, you know, and it appears like the monarchs are going to be a poster child for, you know, maybe, you know, like Ra Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, um, that was written in 1964, wake up call for DDT, among other pesticides was was useful. And I think maybe the monarch butterfly should be the poster child for understanding the importance that insects, not only uh, obviously monarch butterflies are not necessarily important for any agricultural crops that are directly um, beneficial to human beings, but um, certainly from an aesthetic point of view, they're beautiful. And just the fact that they're um, just one of the beautiful creatures of nature and kind of, a, a, you know, just a, a lovely organisms and that they've, the populations have plummeted. And it was so disturbing to see that, you know, you know, 10 years ago, there were thousands and this year there are 2000. So I think putting it into the Endangered Species Act and and actually uh, helping uh, farmers understand the uh, ecological effects and perhaps having government regulations come in and say to restrict it. I mean, I think it has to operate at that level because the farmers would say, well, wait a minute, if I do this and I lose crops, my guy next door is not using it. And he's, uh, you know, so uh, we'd love things to be black and white, but there's often gray. So we have to kind of figure out how to um, help the farmers reduce the dependency on the pesticides that are resulting directly in the demise of many beneficial insects. Yeah, it's well said. And let me bring another caller on. John joins us next. John, welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm, I enjoy trips to Santa Cruz where I go along the, the cliffs there. There used to be scores and scores of pelicans, and now you hardly see a one. Did you have anything to, to say about that? Well, what's happening now, the pelicans... Uh, are, no, I think they're doing fine. Um, they This time of year, they're down in Mexico. So if you don't really see pelicans this time of year, that's a naturally occurring event. So they they overwinter in Mexico. Uh, I think a little, there's a one nesting colony that's a little bit off of uh, San Diego, but for the most part, they're way down, down to the south and they'll be there until uh, the springtime when they start showing back up in, in March. So if you went to Santa Cruz Hills, say in the summertime and there's a bunch of sardines and there's pelicans plunging and it's very exciting and there's lots of them. And then you come back in December and go, where's all the pelicans? Uh, they're down in Mexico, which is a good place to be in the wintertime. And thank you, John, for the call. Uh, here's Mary who says, what do you think of the phone apps that identify plants and animals? 
Um, well, whatever it takes to, you know, I mean, one of the joys that I found when I was first um, learning about organisms and plants in particular is the, the, is what was called keying, a dichotomous key, which is looking at the flower parts very carefully, uh, analyzing them and going step by step by step to figure out what species that is. And what the benefit of that was, is, I should say, is that you really look at the plant. Um, you know, so you really, uh, it really puts you in the moment. So you, you, you look at the petals, you look at the stamens, you look at the pistils, you get intimate with, the, with that particular plant. And, uh, and sometimes you fail and you don't, you, you know, you don't, you can't find what species it is, but the journey has been really illuminating. And the phone apps, well, what happens is you take a picture and, and, you know, you, the computer analyzes it and then pops out the name. Now, have you really learned it or understood it or enjoyed it in the same way? Not for me. On the other hand, it is nice to know the name of something. Um, and that makes you feel familiar with it and makes it feel like it's your friend if you know the name of it. So, yeah, I don't know. Mixed feelings, I guess, is the answer. Getting some uh, emails about what people have seen. John writes, uh, saw Mother Bobcat with four cubs two weeks ago in a vineyard in Livermore and then saw a bald eagle moments later. Magical. Also just saw the elephant seals with my six-year-old at Ana Nuevo. He was ecstatic. Well, what bird or animal questions do you have? We do want to hear from you. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. We're talking with naturalist and wilderness guide for Footloose Forays, Michael Ellis, who also writes for Bay Nature and also does perspectives for KQED and is uh, really literally all over the map. More when we return. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Michael Ellis, naturalist and wilderness guide, Footloose Forays, and talking about, well, animals, uh, but also I want to talk about mushrooms before this hour is over, and we do want to hear from you. You can join us on Twitter or on Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And here's a listener who says, today's show is confusing to me. We're being told to stay at home, yet we are listening to suggestions on where to go. Trying to wrap my head around this. My dog walker today announced that she can't work due to a stay-at-home order. She's rightly following the orders, yet others of us are planning our escapes. Help me understand. I think it's safe to say here at this point that um, if you want to be locked down and want to be in quarantine and you're following the rules here, that's all to the good. Uh, But what we're talking about in terms of experiencing nature can be certainly when when the cavalry comes and the vaccines are here. But what are your thoughts on this? 
Well, I, I think it's confusing. Um, I understand her confusion. Um, but what the governor said, at least how I heard it, is that he was encouraging people to be in the out of doors and that there was um, pr a protocol that had to do with how far you traveled from your home, wherever you lived. And maybe it's changed right now. But last week it was like suggesting that you, you know, enjoy the area right around your home go no more than, I think it was 300 miles, but of course we don't have to do that in the Bay Area. Um, and to, to, if you have to meet with others and, you know, uh, from a psychological point of view, nature is so healing and obviously we are social creatures and many of us have become isolated. And so to meet in the out of doors, to hike into nature um, is therapeutic, is good for your mental health. Um, and uh, I think maybe the dog walker, perhaps there's something with the business uh, parameters, which are a little bit different than individuals. So I'm open for other listeners to try to explain um, exactly what um, we should be doing as proper community um, and society members right now. But I believe that going outside and taking a walk near your home should be something that you are able to do. Well, again, as you said, that it was something Governor Newsom certainly addressed and encouraged people to do. And uh, let's bring another caller on, Amanda from Santa Rosa. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, I just recently this year discovered these wonderful national wildlife refuges. Um, my COVID romance is a 50-year bird watcher. And um, I am disabled, and it is just magical for me to be able to stay in my car and drive along at two, three miles an hour, you know, binoculars at the ready, and to see so much nature. We were just at Gray Lodge and Sacramento, and we watched a, a skunk, uh, you know, eat eat a persimmon. We watched otters playing, bald eagles, widgeons, snow geese. And I never had to, you know, I could stay in the car most of the time and never had to walk farther than about 10 yards, which is about my limits. And I just want disabled people out there to know that, you know, if you miss hiking, this is, I think, about the closest we're going to get. And it was wonderful. Amanda, thank you so much for uh, oh, your oh yeah, that's that's fantastic. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's kind of like those driving through the those wildlife refuges is like pre-adapted for COVID in in a way. And also, Amanda, I know that skunk. I know exactly where you saw it. We were probably there at the same time. It was out in the daytime in the afternoon. It was eating something orange. I got a nice videotape of it. I looked at it carefully, and it was an orange peel. Actually, um, if it's the same skunk, it, there can't be that many skunks out in the daytime that you were able to see eating something orange. So it, we had to be there at the same time. So cool. and let me thank Amanda for the call. I want to go back to something that I mentioned right at the beginning and just get your thoughts on, Michael, and that's uh, mushrooms. Uh, I mean, with the usual caveat that, you know, make sure you don't pick anything poison if you're going to eat it. And I'm not talking about hallucinogenic mushrooms here, but <laughs> tell us about it. Um, what's going to be happening on that front? Well, now that we're finally getting a little bit rain and we've had some cold weather, um, you know, there used to be, of course, a lot of things have been canceled, but the, in uh, Fort Mason in San Francisco used to be the fungus fair, 
which was a fantastic opportunity for both experienced and novice uh, fung fungal files uh, to experience. They would recreate the habitat for certain kinds of mushrooms and, uh, and help, help you understand which ones were toxic. There's not that many that'll actually kill you. I mean, some will make you sick, like inky cap mushrooms, for example, which are, are shaggy manes, they're also called, are fine to eat, except you can't combine it with alcohol, you know, which precludes it for a number of people. But there's an expression, there are bold mushroom eaters and there are old mushroom eaters, but there are no bold old mushroom <laughs> eaters. <laughs> so what's, and they're exciting right now. So basically a mushroom that we describe uh, that's familiar to most people or toadstool is the fruiting body uh, of the mycelia, which is basically underground. And I think a lot of us now have become, uh, due to some popularized accounts, uh, understanding what they call the wood wide web, which is basically the underground, if you will, interconnection that mycelia have in a forest, connecting trees underground in one complete and complex uh, net, if you will. And it's really fascinating. I mean, the great thing about science is, um, and that uh, hopefully people begin to understand, especially with this COVID, um, you know, science and how things were changing so rapidly and they were learning, is that science is a process. It's not an end. And so we're learning so much about things. The more you look at st stuff, the, the more revealing it is. And so whenever I share information, I try to always say something like, it is understood at this time or the way it, we, we, it appears to be this, you know, because eventually we're going to understand something a little bit different. But in the parks, most of the time you can pick mushrooms, you can gather mushrooms uh, because it's the fruiting body, as I said. So it's just like an apple on a tree or a blackberry on a shrub. So each uh, sort of uh, wild area has its own uh, criteria. But for the most part, mushroom gathering is um, allowed in most protected lands. Uh, but also you can just enjoy the aesthetics of mushrooms. So hopefully they'll start coming up pretty soon um, with this combination of good weather uh, and some rain. Uh, I think it's probably a product of reading too many Eastern European writers, but I always associate mushrooms uh, with Baltic countries, particularly Romania, um, especially the toxic and poisonous ones. Because uh, in that literature, there's always uh, somebody comes across a mushroom and looks at it, thinks it's edible, and of course it turns out to be lethal. Let me get another caller on here. Charlene joins us. Charlene, good morning. Charlene, are you there? Well, we'll this is Susie, well, Alameda. Uh, I thought it was Charlene, but Susie, is go it? ahead, please. Huh. Okay. I was just saying, I, I was listening to the program as I drove, and I was cutting through a small street with spotted a great big fresh water puddle, and there are six sparrows just splashing up a storm and having a ball, and they fly away <laughs> and come back, and one of them stays and soaks his feet, and it's just the cutest thing, because they're really splashing a lot of water around, and they keep... Just came in and hanging out. I turned off my engine to sit and watch them. They're just so beautiful. Isn't that nice when you come upon that unexpectedly? <laughs> That's great of you to share that with us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm glad that she said that because this is everywhere. I mean, and she stopped and looked, you know. So, you, you know, I have a friend, Tom Reynolds, a wonderful man. He does, you know, he doesn't go all over the world looking at wildlife, but he lives in Sonoma County. And I cannot believe the stuff that he's able to see. It's just delightful, you know, and you don't have to go far to see all this stuff. Just open your eyes. Let me read a, a question from a listener named Caroline who says, um, hello, I saw dolphins off San Francisco last week. And my theory is 
the water was extra warm, and so they moved north a little more than usual. Is it true that they are not usually here? I've never seen them north of Monterey. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. And there have been uh, bottlenose dolphins in San Francisco Bay for the last uh, several years. Uh, my friend Bill Keener, Bill, is probably listening right now, um, he has been studying these things. He has an organization called the Golden Gate Cetacean Research Group, actually, it dissolved, but that's another story. So he's been tracking these as well as the harbor porpoises in San Francisco Bay. So Carol, Caroline is right in that normally these animals have been seen further to the south, but they have moved up into uh, uh, the northern uh, area and are probably going a little bit further north than they have historically. So um, and so good for her for um, seeing these and identify them. And they're these are well known. Uh, the individuals have been photographed and and, and they're recorded. And so uh, I think now Bill's organization has been uh, folded into the Marine Mammal Center. So if anybody has uh, sightings like that, um, it's it, I think they would really appreciate hearing um, what time it was, how many individuals they saw and where it was. Here's another question from a listener named Jason. Uh, get back to mushrooms here. He wants to know, are burn zones good areas to find morels and what climatic uh, conditions are best for a bloom? Well, I, I'm not an expert. Um, and as you said, Michael, I'm really happy to say, I don't have the answer to that question. What a good question. Why don't you look it up and report back to us? Um, I think there are certain uh, mushrooms that are adapted to uh, periodic burns. Um, it depends, of course, on the temperature of the fire, whether it was a, a superficial fire that was just, you know, as fires hopefully should be in the future if we burned all that fuel load that's built up. Uh, and I think the conditions for um, uh, mushrooms, as I mentioned, are this uh, cold weather uh, followed by some abundant rainfall. Um, and so, and there are fungophiles out that have their favorite chanterelle places um, and places where they can, and morels I usually associate with a little bit later in the, in the season, in the springtime. So that really wasn't a very good answer, Jason. Sorry. <laughs> well, we may get more information from other listeners. Uh, there are a lot of uh, mushroom fanciers, to put it mildly, out there and enthusiasts. Uh, Michael Ellis, naturalist with us, and our next caller is Charlene. Charlene, join us. Hi, I am curious to find out if there is a way to stop speeding cyclists on the Bay Trail. We've been enjoying the trail for many, many years. And because of COVID, there are more cyclists. And they're just not obeying the rules of slowing down when passing. And there's so many of us that are older that can't move or don't hear well when they're behind us. So I was hoping that there would be a way to get more signage on these trails to get people aware of obeying the rules. Charlene, thank you for that question. This has come up before on the program, I think, when you've been on, Michael. New thoughts on this, any? Well, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an avid uh, mountain biker um, and also gravel biker. Um, and so I appreciate, uh, I, I think, and I like to hike, so I appreciate both points of view. I try, uh, you know, all the bicyclists uh, should have a bell um, that they can ring or announce that they're coming up. And it's just uh, common courtesy. And how do you, how do you make someone be courteous? Um, <laughs> it, human behavior, there's like a, a, a range of behaviors in all groups of people, including cyclists. So I think uh, asking cyclists to slow down a little bit in a 
uh, non-judgmental, non-aggressive way, and maybe doing a little education that way. Uh, and at the same time, probably should have law enforcement. I mean, you know, like remind cyclists um, that it is a multi-use trail, that they need to be considerate of others, and that there's a dominance hierarchy on the trail, and to uh, maintain uh, the proper speed uh, in the places where you tend to encounter more uh, uh, pedestrian traffic. So I don't know, if, uh, you know, basically signage will help, but, you know, they already know that. Um, so, you know, law enforcement might be the answer. Boy, I didn't know you were a gravel biker too. I mean, uh, a dancer, a hula hooper and a gravel biker. Uh, you are a man <laughs> of many colors to go back to Shakespeare. Let me go back to some emails. Uh, Norma writes, are specific foods we could put in our yards to help the displaced birds you reference? I saw towns and warblers at my feeder, which don't usually show up in suburban backyards. Are they displaced? Oh, that's so funny, Norma. I, I yesterday found a, a Townsend's warbler at my bird feeder as well. And my guess is, yes, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, the idea like the National Wildlife Foundation has, a, you know, a, what is it called? Backyard habitat, uh, which is um, suggestions for people uh, to plant different kinds of things in their yard that enhances habitat for the native species that are in the area. So that would obviously be plants that provide uh, food for um, birds. And most of those would be uh, native, native plants, which um, has the added benefit of not requiring as much water as, uh, as ornamental plants. So there's a whole list of, of ways that you can improve your backyard to enhance its uh, appeal to uh, native species. Another caller joining us uh, from San Francisco. It's Mike who wants to talk about coyotes. Mike, welcome. Hey, I also just want to mention that the Academy of Science is a great webcam out in the Farallons. People want to watch the birds out there. Um, my specific question is, what do we do about the coyotes? Um, I mean, is there any way to manage them as, you know, I know we're encroaching on their territory, but, you know, they're coming pretty close to, um, you know, our habitat in San Francisco, or the residents. I'm not sure is there any way to mitigate that or reduce the population humanely? <laughs> Uh, I love coyotes. Uh, they're so adaptable, so flexible. Um, they behave differently depending on the environment that they're in. Um, and uh, I don't own a cat. Um, and coyotes are feeding on some of the domestic animals, which I know can be quite upsetting to, to people. And uh, I mean, you obviously could manage the number of coyotes by culling them, polite word for killing them. Uh, or they'll reach just reach a natural carrying capacity. I think animals that start uh, misbehaving, shall we say, or being too aggressive to people or, you know, people have fed them, so they recognize that, you know, those animals should probably be dispatched. Um, other than that, I think that um, the animals are probably, the environment's going to reach a carrying capacity. Now, that carrying capacity may not be uh, amenable to what uh, local residents want. Um, and I so the answer, I mean, you can get deprivation permits, you know, I mean, coyotes, you can, you can kill coyotes, you know, they've had wars waged against them for hundreds of years, and coyotes are winning, actually, they've moved all the way through the eastern United States as well, once the wolf was displaced. So there, uh, you know, we can either rejoice in the fact that we can see coyotes or be upset by the fact that we see coyotes. Michael, question, uh, really, you may have been unintentionally transgressive, according to a listener named Carol, who says, please ask Mr. Ellis to rescind his statement that it's okay to pick mushrooms on public lands. Plant and animal life is protected in the peninsula open space, and taking any of it home, including mushrooms, is prohibited. 
Yeah, uh, each one of the, the thank you uh, for that. Uh, each one of the public uh, protected areas has different parameters. Um, so there are some areas in which you are able to take mushrooms and then there are some or whatever. Uh, and then there are some where you're not. So thanks for that um, elucidation on that. I appreciate it. A couple quick questions. Uh time permitting. Mike wants to know, we've seen quite a few rats in our fruit trees in Berkeley. We heard rats are looking for food with the restaurant closures. Any validity to that? Well, the rats are always looking for food, but more so because of restaurant closures? Probably. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised because they take advantage of whatever urban offal happens to be available. And if all of a sudden, they, you know, restaurants have closed and the back, the back areas of restaurants are no longer available, it makes sense. And my I've had rats too. I mean, they're just ubiquitous in all urban areas. And they, it does seem like they tend to, at least at my house, uh, become more um, obvious in the, in the wintertime. I'm not sure why, um, but uh, I've noticed that as well through the years. So maybe uh, the populations uh, from springtime have just expanded and now the babies which were born earlier in the year are now full grown. So good luck. I wish we had more time with you because it's always enlightening and we have to leave a lot of callers and emailers, uh, unfortunately, without responses because we can't get them in here. But it's always a delight to have you and uh, hope all goes well with your granddaughter. And uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for all your uh, wonderful insights and suggestions. Oh, you're welcome. And now that you're retired, are you going to go on a trip with me finally? <laughs> Uh, I'm planning on doing a lot of trips when I'm retired, so, <laughs> assuming the vaccinations are going to be uh, in place and I'm going to be able to, to travel because I'm comorbid. But thank yeah. you again. It's so, it's so nice to be with you again, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you. For all of us here at KQED, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.